Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show who are experts in their fields. I'm John Olson, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and the man sitting next to me is Bruce Moreland, your other host. We do our best to stay away from politics here. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, on the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. We're joined by two guests this morning. Our first guest is former Minnesota Senator David Senjum from Rochester. Uh, Senator Senjum uh, was until recently a member of the Minnesota Senate. He served as majority leader from 2011 to 2013. A moderate Republican, Senjum has crossed party lines on many occasions, notably on environmental policy and women's issues. Until 2023, he represented District 25, which includes portions of Dodge and Olmstead counties in the southeastern part of the state. He is now a county commissioner representing Olmstead County's 2nd District. Our second guest is Dr. Kenneth Blumenfeld, senior climatologist for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. He also serves as an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate at the University of Minnesota. You've probably heard Dr. Blumenfeld in interviews on Minnesota Public Radio, on Twin Cities Public Television's Friday evening show, The Almanac, and on other venues as well. Senator Dave Senjum and Dr. Kenny Blumenfeld, welcome to Public Policy this week. Well, so thank you. Good, good to be here. Yeah, good, good, good to be here. Uh, uh, particularly good, uh, both John and Bruce. And uh, uh, I'm sitting in St. Paul, uh, looking over the Mississippi River, uh, wintery day. Uh, I do want to take this opportunity to give a little shout out because she may be online out in. Tenerife and the Canary Islands. Oh. <laughs> uh, my good, my good friend Sabina Engel, who uh, actually uh, were not for her, I wouldn't be on the show today. She is, uh, she's led me down the path of uh, renewable in- energy interests, and uh, and I'll forever appreciate that. But uh, she may be out there, and I just want to say hi. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so Bruce and I are in the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota this morning. Uh, Senator Senjum, you said you're up at a hotel in, in St. Paul. Is that right? That's right. I, I'm, a, I'm a new county commissioner, so we're doing county commissioner training up here. And uh, uh, so that's good. It's another part of my life. Uh, and frankly, in great part, uh, I, I pursued this to be able to pursue some of my Senate interests in, in energy beyond uh beyond the state Senate, uh, now into county governments. And uh, Dr. Engel and I intend to work with counties across the Minnesota. Not, not unlike she's worked with cities, I've worked with her and, uh, and you know, working to, uh, again, advance the, the idea of a clean energy future. So uh, looking forward to my role in county government. Well, thank you for continuing your, your public service. And, and Dr. Kenny Blumenfeld, where are you seated this morning? I am coming to you from the beautiful Minnesota State Climatology Office. We are located, uh, so we are a DNR facility. We are DNR employees. That's the Department of Natural Resources, part of state of Minnesota government. But we are located on the St. Paul campus of the University of Minnesota, the uh, Natural Resources and Agriculture Campus. So coming to you, uh, you know, just after clearing out the snow. 
<laughs> I, I know. I, I have to say, I've been using Zoom now since the start of all this isolation, and it's really a great way to bring together guests like yourselves uh, in, a, in a shared venue. It's really cool. So we'd like to start our discussions this morning with the science aspects of climate change. We'll get the scientific picture, then move on to detailed discussions on public policy options that we might consider when we deal with climate change. Dr. Blumenfeld, I've heard climatologists explain that climate is how you decide whether to have more sweaters than T-shirts in your closet, (laughs) and weather is what you wear on any particular day. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about climate change? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, We think of weather as, you know, this kind of fast-changing thing that varies from day to day. So there's a lot of analogies. It might be uh, that you know, climate is your wardrobe and weather is what you wear or, you know, <laughs> climate is the traffic and weather is a car. That, the whole idea is that climate is this larger thing. It's kind of the average of all of the weather that you have in a given area over, depending on what period of time you're looking at, whether it's a season or multiple seasons or multiple years. When we talk about changing climate, now we're talking about a way to detect a meaningful difference between some, you know, usually it's more current point in time and maybe the the recent or the distant past, depending again on the question that you're asking. And, you know, with climate, you start with the basics. It's usually temperature and precipitation. Those are the easiest things to measure. And those are the things that have been measured the longest. And we have measurements all around the world. And in Minnesota, we have over a hundred years of those kinds of measurements and you can use those measurements to to look at any changes that have occurred. And, you know, Minnesota's climate kind of famously goes up and down, right? It's, it's incredibly extreme. But you also, if you've been paying attention in recent decades, probably have noticed that it's, you know, a bit warmer than it used to be. And sometimes we get more precipitation than we used to have. And these are the trends or the ongoing changes or the persistent changes. So they don't, they don't happen every year. It's not like every year is warmer than the year before. But Minnesota, on average, is warmer in the in more, most recent few decades than it was for the majority of the 20th century, such that you know, a typical day now might be three degrees Fahrenheit warmer than, than it would have been, say, at the turn of the 20th century. And when you look more closely... The, uh, the changes are greater during winter, a little lesser during summer, but we still are warming during summer. And then also more warming in the northern part of Minnesota than the southern part of Minnesota. So winter's our fastest warming season. These changes have really accelerated since about 1970. And so, of course, we still get, you know, long, cold winters sometimes. It's just they, they tend not to be as long and as cold as they used to be, not as severe as they used to be. And, uh, and at the same time, on average, we're seeing more precipitation. Uh, again, that does not mean that every year is wetter than the year before. It just means that when you average up, you know, a, say a 30-year period, the most recent one is basically wetter than any other recent 30 or 30-year period on record. So uh, we're in a warm and wet period here. And the science of it is that, you know, there's at least one of the major drivers is that, uh, we have had additional greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that have uh, caused the globe to warm up because they, they essentially trap heat that would be escaping from the planet. So our main symptoms here in Minnesota are 
warmer winters, warmer conditions in general, and uh, heavier precipitation events, including snowfall. And then when we look into the future, we've got mostly the same things, but also some new changes coming. That's interesting. I, I, I like to tell my grandkids that winters aren't, you know, we had to walk to school uphill both ways <laughs> through 50 feet of snow. And, yeah. and, and I'm kind of nice to yeah. see a lot of snow this year, but it, it sounds like you're saying that more snow is a natural consequence of a warming climate uh, for Minnesota. Yeah. And that's kind of yeah. counterintuitive, isn't it? It it can be until you really think about what's going on. I mean, we're we're a deep winter state. We have so if you think of, you know, I, we could sort of explain winter as this resource. This kind of it has been eroded, right? It's not as cold as it used to be. Uh, typical January night in International Falls is now almost ten degrees warmer than it was just sixty, seventy years ago. Oh. International Falls. That's our that's the ice box of the nation. That's our cold weather uh, test bed. And so that's a, that's a substantial change. Uh, all that said, we still have a lot of coldness in the bank, right? So there's, there's a lot of winter left, even as we've eroded, started eroding it. And so we still spend a lot of the winter cold enough for snow. Meanwhile, the increases in global temperatures have evaporated more water into the air, the atmosphere. And I know that, you know, saying things like evaporation, people harken back to high school physics and they maybe tune out. But this is really simple. The amount of water on the planet isn't changing, right? It's just what state that water is in. So it's either going to be liquid, it's going to be solid like snow and ice, or it's going to be gas. And right now we are moving a lot of water, especially out of that snow and ice phase but also off of the oceans and then putting it into the air. So we're just sort of changing the balance. But the water in the air is what we all know as humidity. Humidity is the fuel for passing weather systems that could produce precipitation. And so the increase in global temperatures have actually added the uh, amount of fuel that's available for some of our precipitating weather systems. And so as a result, just about any time of year, we've had this tendency to see, you know, it's not every single time, because everything has to come together just so, but this tendency to have heavier precipitation events, and that includes snowfall events. Uh, it's not that we're always breaking records. It's just that these kind of metrics have been inching upwards in recent decades. So the heaviest snow of the year at most places in Minnesota is now a bit heavier than it used to be. The number of days with you know, four inches of snow where the, the plows have to come out and you might have snow emergency declared in your town so that the plows can clear the streets. Uh, the, the number of days on average is increasing with that kind of snow, even though even though our winters have warmed so much that, uh, you know, some people hardly recognize uh, the current winter from the way that, you know, they remember it as children. This, this is all sounding like very good information for a county commissioner to hear. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Blumenfeld, you are interpreting the data that's been collected so far. Uh, the data That data demonstrates that the climate is, in fact, changing and specifically warming, as you've just been discussing. As senior climatologist for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, what, what kind of conversations are you having with other scientists across the DNR, uh, maybe in the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and other state offices, about future impacts of climate change on our state. Uh, what, what are the likely future impacts of climate change on our state? Yeah, sure. So, uh, of course, climate prediction and climate projections a little bit different 
from the weather. Sure. The main the main difference is that we're trying to understand an ongoing change in our climate system and then project that into the future. And this is really complicated. Um, the you know with with weather, you kind of just have to know what's been happening, and you have to know the basic equations of atmospheric motion and heat exchange and all of that. And you can crunch the numbers and figure out generally where the thunderstorms will be or where a snowstorm is going to go. But in the future, when you're dealing with changing composition of the atmosphere, in other words, you know, changing the quantity of these trace but very potent greenhouse gases, uh, that has big ramifications for the climate. So you end up having to run a bunch of different scenarios. And depending on, you know, do, do countries get their acts together and kind of all figure out how to limit emissions and get things under control. That's a very optimistic version to does, you know, nobody figures it out and we all, it's kind of every country for itself and uh, lots of carbon intensive energy. And so that's a, a also not very likely, but a somewhat dire scenario. And then you've got this whole range in between. When we look at all the scenarios and especially when we consider the ones that seem to be most likely, what we see is basically through the 21st century, we would expect to see the similar rate of temperature changes, maybe with a slight increase in that rate sometime beginning around 2050 or so, uh, as what we've already seen. So if I say that in the last 50, 60 years, our winters have warmed four to six degrees Fahrenheit and the January nights have warmed seven to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, we could probably in the next 40 to 50 years expect those sa that same magnitude of changes and then maybe even a slightly faster rate as we get into the latter part of this century. So continued warming. I think one of the things that's confusing for climate scientists, and we just have to be honest here, we don't know everything, is understanding what the role of precipitation is going to be in the future. Mm. Again, you go back to the basic physics. There's more moisture in the atmosphere and Minnesota's in a pretty favorable location to receive that moisture because we're due north of the Gulf of Mexico and that's our main moisture source. And so the fact that we've uh, already gotten wetter, especially in the 2000s and the 2010s, somewhat matches this notion that there's more water available for, for weather systems. But on, at the same time, we know that the, the weather and the climate can go through these big kind of natural variations. And, and these big swings that, you know, don't necessarily guarantee year after year of wet conditions. And in some of those scenarios where the climate models pick up on, we, we go through these very dry periods in the future that are just quite hot, not a lot of precipitation, and we end up with, with significant drought. And so there's a little bit of uncertainty because there's uh, some good scientific evidence that we're going to have, on average, more precipitation but also scientific evidence that it's going to be broken up or punctuated by these pretty important dry spells that are going to be coupled with hot weather and make things really difficult here. So just like it always has, I th we think the climate's going to continue to have its sort of normal up and down variations. It's just going to be around an average towards wetter and warmer conditions. And especially uh, there's very good evidence that we'll be seeing new precipitation extremes as we move into the years and decades ahead and also some new heat extremes, which is something we really haven't experienced much of yet here 
in Minnesota. And in terms of conversations with other scientists, I mean, this is a, you know, think of agriculture where it's really, well, think of almost everything that happens in Minnesota it really comes down to water. And we're a water state, right? Yeah. I mean, think of all the lakes and the rivers. Think of recreation. Think of the water that's depended upon for agriculture, for industry, just uh, to keep the population. I mean, you know, to keep us healthy, we we have to consume water. We need water for our, our daily lives. And then also it's, it's part of the aesthetic too, right? People have gardens and people want... Uh, you know, people, people like having water in their lives. So this is a, it's a really big concern because this question of what's going to happen to the water as the temperature continues increasing, as the precipitation on average increases, but you also go through these kind of big swinging extremes, there, there's some uncertainty there. And there's a little bit of, I don't know, I don't want to call it um, anxiety, but there's a little bit of concern over, you know, how are we going to manage this? Because, people came out of the 2019s where as a state on average, we just had way too much water around and people didn't know where there was nowhere to put it and communities were getting damaged a lot. And then to flip and then come into a pretty harsh drought two years in a row in different parts of Minnesota, I think kind of got people's attention. So we started hearing from people in agriculture and in forestry and in water resources management, uh, the concerns are, you know, what's going to be able to grow here? What are we going to, what's, what's our, what are, you know, kind of business operations going to look like if we have this kind of volatility superimposed over the changes towards wetter and warmer conditions? I, I just wanted to jump in and clarify a little bit. Um, people who actually have to make bets on the weather are already aware sure. of the fact that we're having bigger and more powerful hailstorms. The insurance industry is very nervous about insuring Minnesotans because our roofs are so vulnerable over and over again. And is that a consequence of getting more moisture in the area? Yeah, this is actually an area where we aren't necessarily involved in some of the conversations about messaging. And I would, I would, challenge the folks in the insurance industry on some of these points. Uh, the science has been really unclear about the behavior of what we call severe convective storms. Uh, these are the storms that produce tornadoes and hailstones and severe convective winds. Now, 2022 was incredibly active. It was a very, very active year. We have we had a lot of damage in Minnesota. It was one of the most damaging years of my life. But the period where we've had the greatest like, certifiable climate changes in Minnesota was from the mid-late 1990s into the through the 2010s. And it, the more recent half of that period was very quiet from a severe convective storm standpoint. It actually was anomalously quiet. In other words, we ended up with... Uh, we ended up with fewer tornadoes, fewer damaging tornadoes, and less overall severe convective weather during that period, even though we were seeing skyrocketing temperatures and increasing precipitation extremes during that period. So the other symptoms were, were all working. And when you zoom back out and look at it from a national standpoint, where, you know, because the United States has the most severe convective storms of any other place on Earth, we're just, we're a hotbed for it. There's been a similarly mixed signal, the traditional tornado alley, 
has kind of gone quiet in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas. They still get a lot of tornadoes, but not, not maybe the way that they used to. And meanwhile, there's been a little bit of a shift towards uh, the deep south, that area in Alabama and Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, areas that have traditionally had a lot of springtime severe weather activity, but they've, they've been seeing a bit more in recent years. And so there's some uncertainty about how much of this is just kind of, these are really kind of rare events that, that are driven by different, slightly different mechanisms and, and maybe aren't yet seeing the influence of the global changes in the climate because they have a lot of local influences or, or what we call mesoscale influences, which are these kind of county-sized boundaries that affect the behavior of those storms. Uh, and in the world of climate projections, it's also unclear what's going to happen. There's, there isn't a, a smoking gun that says that tornadoes are going to become stronger or more destructive. There's some limited research that does support, you know, stronger thunderstorms, but maybe fewer of them, or bigger hailstones, but not as frequent. And so one of the things we have to do is sort of reconcile that sort of complicated, and it's always nuanced scientific reality, with the fact that our population is increasing, right? And it's, it's also expanding. So we occupy more of the land and we have more structures that, you know, I don't want to use the word. I mean, John, you might appreciate this, but they're, they're, um, it's like targets, right? Yeah. There's more targets for hailstones to hit and for, you know, windstorms to damage now. And we know from research that was done in the 1990s uh, by, by climatologists working with the insurance industry that a lot of the uptick that we've seen is from what we just call, call population factors, which is population owning more things, increasing in size and expanding across the landscape just subjects you to more potential damage in any given area, even if one person's average risk hasn't actually changed all that much. So this is just to say uh, it's a great observation that you know hailstorms might be getting more destructive but there isn't a there isn't i don't think it right now has the weight of you know scientific evidence behind it it's it's mostly anecdotal and it's something that's definitely affecting the insurance industry and especially if you you imagine that there's ups and downs in the severe convective storm climatology just like there is with temperature and precipitation we know that at a minimum we just went through basically a blockbuster year for these kinds of storms and it's at a time where minnesota's population is the biggest it's ever been and we've owned we have more stuff on the landscape than we've ever had so of course this would be a devastating blow to to insurers uh so you're listening to public policy this week on kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 and we're broadcasting out of downtown northfield minnesota i'm john olson and my co-host bruce marlin and i are talking with senator david senjum and dr kenneth blumenfeld about climate change and public policy here in minnesota Dr. Blumenfeld, thank you for explaining the science and some of the math behind all of this and for detailing the likely climate impacts our state will be facing in coming years. We'd like you to stick with us as we transition to policy opportunities for our state because we're going to need your insights on climate and weather as we continue our discussion. Senator David Senjum, we'd like to turn to you now. You just heard everything Dr. Blumenfeld had to say about climate change in Minnesota. 
And during your time in the Minnesota Senate, you were widely seen as a leader in assessing and acting on climate change. You even led a delegation to Germany to study their approach to energy conservation and resiliency. You've always been a fact-based, data-driven policymaker who seeks collaboration on important policy issues like climate change. You've now left the Minnesota Senate. To your knowledge, what legislation has been in the works in the state legislature to put Minnesota on the right path toward climate resiliency? Well, thank you so much. And it's, it, again, it's so nice to be here. And it, uh, it's just, just uh, inspiring to listen to Dr. Blumenthal talk about uh, this uh, subject of, of climate change with his expertise. And uh, I by no means am an expert. I, I'm, I'm a policymaker. I, I am self-taught. I, uh, I, I always say, uh, you know, our job is uh, to see the future and go there. And uh, I don't think that uh, you can do this job, at least at the policymaking level, without uh, understanding to some degree, degree uh, and, and you may not understand it completely, that uh, uh, our weather paths are changing, and uh, either scientific or politically, you have to move. And so, so the legislature, is, I think, it has done that over the course of the, the last uh, decade or two. And I will give some, to your question, I, I will give some certainly credit, uh, maybe a lot of credit, to uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty back, and this is during my time in the legislature in 2007, as he uh, brought forward the Next Generation Energy Act, which uh, was uh, rather alarming at the time for many of us. Uh, uh, how can we do this? Is this reasonable? Uh, the idea of being... Uh, 25% renewable energy by 2025, and if your XL energy was 30%, uh, uh, is that real? Could it be done? And so on and so forth. But uh, the governor persisted on that and got it passed. Uh, we didn't know at the time whether or not we could make those goals. Uh, we know now that, uh, frankly, well ahead of 2025, we're, we're ahead of those goals. But uh, so that was, uh, that was in my life experience, at least in the legislature, the, the start of this journey. Uh, I would say then, perhaps uh, in 2013, uh, uh, Senator Melissa, me, Representative Melissa Portman, uh, now Speaker of the House, uh, involved in energy herself, by the way, uh, and as a result, frankly, of a, uh, of a trip to Germany, uh, it came back and uh, unfolded and passed what we might call the, and do call the Community Solar Program, which, uh, again, is a sort of a major step with it, uh, on the journey towards a cleaner energy future it uh, allowed uh, communities and uh, smaller groups to uh, again develop uh, solar uh, installations uh, it wasn't necessarily all part of the the big utility schemes and so on and so forth so so that was a that was a, a good step and then i i, I will give uh, humbly uh, myself and zach stevenson uh, i think it was about 2018 uh, we came forward with what we call the Clean Energy First Bill. Now, this is a bill that never passed, but it persisted for about three years. And we uh, uh, kept talking about uh, this idea. And it was a rather simple one, actually. It, uh, it all it said is that uh, as utilities need uh, more energy, that they have to consider uh, clean energy options first. And uh, there were some off-ramps with respect to affordability and reliability, but they'd have to prove their case before the Public Utilities Commission. Uh, there was certainly pushback on that. It, again, it never did pass. I think if I could have got it to the floor, it would have passed, but uh, uh, politics being such, it, it did not. But what it, I think, did is it 
is it really, uh, I think, uh, propelled the conversation a little bit. And along the way during those three years, uh, XL Energy, Minnesota Power, uh, Great River Energy, and, and other utilities uh, began stepping forward with uh, their own goals relative to a clean energy future. And uh, whether that was because of the uh, Clean Energy First bill or whether it was just uh, concurrent, irrespective of the bill, uh, we'll never we'll never know. But I think it I think we did change the conversation, and humbly said, I think it. Uh, from the outside looking in by, by people uh, now realizing that they had a uh, Republican Senator in, in the Senate that was going to uh, uh, go down this path. Uh, there probably was some level of weariness uh, relative to what might happen in, in the future. And, uh, and so things started moving and uh, while we weren't able to pass clean energy first, uh, there was a litany of other bills which came along uh, Afterwards, we started putting a lot of money into solar in schools. Uh, we might call these small steps, and I think they are. Uh, we uh, gave some money to Curry Island uh, Indian uh, uh, the casino down there to uh, to go to a net zero, and they're they're on their path to get there on that campus. And uh, the Natural Gas Innovation Act was uh, was a, a pretty big one at the time. Again. All these, all these steps, the solar rewards program, whereas uh, if you're an XL customer, will will help you with the, the installation of solar panels on the roof, uh, what we call the host community legislation, which uh, recognized that uh, our fossil fuel plants in Minnesota are going to, in fact, uh, uh, cease existing and uh, places like Oak Park Heights and, and so on have. And uh, Monticello's on its way with the uh, Sherco uh, installations up there and, and others as well. And so we uh, enacted the host community legislation, which, uh, again, what do we do to, again, uh, uh, help these communities? They include these giant tax bases associated with these uh, fossil fuel utility burners. So so we did that. Uh, Governor or Senator Rarick's uh, Eco Act, uh, working again with the Representative Stevenson was a, a good addition to what we call the Conservation Improvement Program, working with St. Uh, Thomas on the Smart Grid Program, funding a, a nice uh, program over there. The University of Minnesota Morris, which uh, I've, I've come to find is uh, may well be one of the uh, places of expertise in the world relative to the, the advancement of hydrogen as part of our energy future. Uh, we funded them well. And so all I'm saying is that there a litany of, uh, of projects like this that I think uh, uh, were uh, allowed to perhaps politically move forward because of uh, the clean energy first discussion, uh, I think, started back in, again, 2018 and, and went for about three years as we continued to have hearings and hearings and hearings on it. So uh, perhaps the best described to say we kind of loosened things up a little bit. And, and uh, I think and I don't think, I, I know uh, that, uh, truth be known, that uh, uh, had we been able to get clean energy first uh, on the floor, uh, we would have probably passed it because uh, uh, a lot of uh, people, uh, again, we're all victims of this, me included. I didn't go to Germany in 2010 intently uh, supportive of, of this kind of a clean energy future. I, I had to learn it. And uh, I was, by, frankly, by the way, in Germany much more than once, uh, probably 10 to 15 times as we worked with uh, our German counterparts in understanding energy 
we go there, they come here, and, and that's been a big part of my life. And it's uh, probably because of that that uh, I'm sitting, as I said, sitting here today. Uh, and as we think about just advancing this in Minnesota, a lot of a lot of people have to kind of, they won't all go to Germany for sure, but again, they you have to kind of learn this, understand it, and, and accept it as, it, as the future. Uh, fossil fuels, uh, for a lot of reasons, are not our future. And uh, we have to look at clean energy sources. Again, by 2040, there won't be a fossil fuel uh, utility plant in Minnesota that's active. So that's not all that far away. And so what are we going to do to fill that gap? And it's going to be advancements in renewable energy. Uh, so, Senator Sundjim, it, it seems it seems to me, based on all of our discussions so far and the, the research that uh, Bruce and I have done and, and a number of climate shows that we've done together now, it seems a prudent measure to build much uh, greater resiliency into Minnesota's economy, into our infrastructure, and even into our agricultural practices to prepare for a changed climate. Uh, based on your many exchanges, uh, trips over to Germany and, and their visits here, your review of the science, your own research on the best choices for public policy options— what kind of policies do you think merit the most focus? Uh, is it mandates for carbon dioxide reductions in energy production? Is it incentives to reward companies, especially maybe the power companies, to reduce emissions or to switch over to clean energy? Is it incentives for farmers to sequester carbon dioxide on their farms or to install wind and solar arrays on their land? What, what should Minnesotans be thinking about with regard to public policy on this subject? Well, again, thank you again. And uh, I, uh, I'm a former Mayo Clinic employee, and uh, and as uh, we worked there, uh, uh, and as they uh, they taught us uh, uh, and tried to teach us at least the Mayo Clinic culture and how how Mayo uh, aspired to be, uh, success came from uh, a thousand or perhaps even ten thousand little things. And I think that's probably that's probably the path here as well. I don't think. There's two or three or even five things that we need to do because there's many, many more things uh, that uh, need to occur to make this path successful. And I, I think we also have to realize if we, if we were to look at the MISO chart today, uh, the uh, and that's a measure for those that don't know of, uh, of their various sources of, uh, of electrical uh, uh, load and where we're getting that energy uh, it's still largely coal. It's uh, a lot of natural gas. Is certainly nuclear and and certainly some wind. But uh, if you kind of look at uh, what we might call renewable, it's uh, on any given day uh, not much more than oh, I'll just say maybe twenty percent. It certainly varies a little bit. But uh, so we've got a lot of energy that we have to find someplace else. Uh, now the Senate yesterday, I believe, and the House a day or two before that did. Uh, did pass what we call a 100% renewable energy bill by 2040. Uh, we discussed that previously. Uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's an aspirational thing. It, it kind of doesn't get you there, but it maybe, again, uh, puts you on an aspirational path to get there, much as uh, maybe uh, Governor Pawlenty's uh, legislation back uh, did back in 2007. So, so uh, they will pass that uh, and uh, it, it will go forward. But then the question is then, well, then what? Okay, we've got the sticker on the bumper uh, and it says 2000, 100% uh, by 2040, but, but now we really have to get down to work to meet those aspirations. I, I would say, and I, I think, I, I wouldn't mind at all if the legislature would do this because I think all of us 
and certainly the, the the body politic has to has to understand that this is more than just a political journey for a certain group of people. It it's a necessary journey. We all have to understand it. I, I believe that we ought to go forward with the uh, uh, funding of a pretty good educational program in Minnesota for for all of our citizenry. Uh, I always felt legislation you, you you don't do things to people. You do things for people and. And if it's for people, they have to understand why you're doing it. And so I, I think education is key here. But just kind of thinking about some of the other aspects of the menu, uh, uh, I, I I mentioned the solar program, or pardon me, the hydrogen program over at Morris. I, uh, the federal government has massive money now to develop uh, hydrogen in this country. I think it's nine over $9 billion dollars. We're talking about hydrogen hubs and advancing hydrogen, especially for the heavy loads, uh, whether it's maritime, whether it's trains, whether it's large, large equipment, whether it's uh, trucking, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whether, in fact, it's even uh, for electrical generation or maybe even to uh, work a little bit with natural gas in our in our heating systems. So advancing hydrogen, I think, is important to. Uh, not everybody will agree with this, but I've been out to, to Idaho, to the Idaho National Laboratory, the small modular nuclear, I think has to be part of the equation here in terms of uh, developing, again, a clean energy future. These aren't large, like the large power plants. These are smaller modules uh, developed to be uh, much more safe and, and so on and so forth. I don't think we can necessarily ignore those we can't certainly forget uh, wind and solar applications. And uh, and uh, I think as we do that, uh, I think we already know that that can get into a little bit of controversy and especially in rural Minnesota. And uh, we get the arguments about food versus uh, electricity. And uh, there's a new kind of term now we use agrivoltaics, uh, uh, whether we can grow food and uh, produce energy on the same land uh, that that's that needs to advance because uh, we know we can there's enough pilot projects that have shown us that but moreover i think we have to also uh come to an agreement that and again part of my role now in county government not not certainly officially on paper is to is to work with counties and talk about these kind of issues and uh, try to avoid moratoriums try to create understanding and try to, in fact, uh, uh, allow people at the county government level to understand that this is our future. And uh, as I said earlier, we need to go there and we need to go there together, collaboratively, even politically and otherwise, we need to certainly make this work. But you know, again, expanding wind, expanding solar, uh, going into geothermal, uh, uh, looking at our, our water streams and rivers, uh, Wherever this may take us, even even wave action, if you're in a coastal community, uh, may be part of this energy future in terms of trying to again collect any energy that we can that uh, we're we're not collecting now. Uh, even uh, and as uh, we learned well as you're into this, uh, the amount of heat that we just disperse back into the atmosphere unused, which is valuable heat, uh, we need to think of ways of collecting that. Uh, we need to, I don't think, uh, and this is controversial as well, but uh, we're not going to advance this world without uh, certain uh, certain metals, copper, nickel, and, and, and those heavy metals that uh, are going to be used in the, in the technology, which is going to help us get there. And uh, 
we have to come to come to agreement that we can and and the regulatory oversights that we can do this safely and and productively and in, in, in a fashion that uh, again complements our, our clean energy future. Uh, it, it's just that important uh, that we do that. And another one actually came up at my energy society meeting last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago actually was was uh, the skill set and uh, whether it's the the people that put in. Uh, Put on solar panels or insulation, or more particularly that evening, we were talking about uh, with Moss Cavill from the University of Minnesota, uh, Dean of Engineering, or at least former Dean, uh, the whole issue about training engineers, that there's a marked decrease in the amount of individuals going into the engineering field right now, at least at the University of Minnesota, and, and it's a serious sort of uh, uh, reduction, and we need to, what can we do to... Uh, bring people into that field because we're going to need them to help us go forward. So there's many things that I could go mention. I don't want to ramble. I probably already am, but <laughs> no. the, home heating, the home heating area, the transportation area, construction codes and so on, they're all an important part of this menu and, uh, and the legislature and, uh, and the body politic has to, uh, again, uh, take these into consideration to begin the conversation. You, you were saying that at Mayo you learned lots of little solutions are often the solution. In Citizens Climate Lobby, we like to point out that there's no silver bullet for climate change, but there is silver buckshot. And what That's you right. just described sounds like silver buckshot. Silver buckshot, many of them, yes. And, Senator, uh, just a few days ago, uh, USA Today ran a, a really interesting uh, article. Uh, the title is, Green Energy Has a Problem. There Aren't Enough elect- Electricians. Uh, so to to that uh, to that issue, uh, training uh, young young men and women who want to go into the skilled trades uh, to really help us move forward on these kinds of projects is going to be critical going forward for the future. It, it absolutely is. I mean, we're just not going to be able to get there without these skill sets. Uh, it's all a, the way from vocational training to to PhD engineers. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland, and alongside my co-host Jim Olson, we're speaking with Senator David Sengem and Dr. Kenneth Blumenfeld about climate change and public policy here in the great state of Minnesota. Uh, Dr. Blumenfeld, we don't want to you know, put you on the spot on policy, but what kinds of research programs or scientific data measurements would really be uh, helpful for our state and county governments to better address climate change or to assess how well they're reducing carbon dioxide and methane production in our energy, transportation, and agricultural sectors? Any thoughts from the science? Yeah, th- this is almost like a setup because uh, <laughs> th- I- I'm going to, you know, I would have given the same answer even if I wasn't on a radio show with uh, Senator Senjum, but uh, <laughs> he had been instrumental in something that, you know, almost like a holy grail type of project. Uh, and so one of the things that has been the most difficult thing to understand is we know climate is changing, right? That's, I mean, this is scientifically established and everybody has observed it. And we know that it is going to continue to change. And and we, you know, as I discussed before, there's a range of possibilities, but we know we're somewhere within that range. And they all kind of point to 
a warmer future, uh, probably more precipitation, but there's some uncertainty about just how warm and just how hot and just how extreme some of those events are. What we really have struggled with is understanding what that means at the community level. What's it going to mean for your weather? What's it going to mean for the number of flood events in the state? What's it mean for, you know, community roads and culverts and, you know, uh, water treatment facilities and our infrastructure? And so uh, Senator Senjum actually was instrumental in helping scientists at the University of Minnesota um, get started on a study. This is a multiple-year study where they have to use uh, supercomputers, supercomputers from the Minnesota Supercomputing Institute at the university to run a series of what's called downscaled or dynamically downscaled climate projections so that people, in, for example, so that folks in agriculture can have a better understanding of what the weather is going to be like and how the how weather patterns might be changing and, you know, things like how many additional thunderstorms or fewer thunderstorms are we going to see and how much more rain will fall on them? And these are questions that are, you know, actually most states don't have the ability to answer these questions. They're very difficult. And the scientific community in general can't like point to a given area on the globe or on a map of North America and, and try to give you an answer. So what Minnesota has needed is an ability to do that. And it's something that scientists are actually working on right now. And so that's a big relief. And then I would say paired with that, another thing that Minnesotans really need in terms of research is something that's done at the federal level. It's pretty arcane, but think of it like, and it's called precipitation design values. Now, that sounds already boring, I'm sure, but precipitation design values are based on, you've probably heard the term 100-year rainfall or 50-year rainfall. Well, those values, the, uh, the size of a 100-year rainfall, for example, is really important. And engineers actually use that number. And it's, in many cases, coded into, it's part of federal statute that on federal interstates, they have to use these values to then build out the drainage systems on the public infrastructure, like transportation infrastructure and whatnot. And these values traditionally, they're, they've always been hard to update. And then, of course, because you then build out a, a you know, concrete asphalt infrastructure, they, they end up being fairly rigid. And what we also need is a more flexible way of assessing those values as we move into the future. And fortunately, that's something that the federal government is trying to deliver on uh, this decade. And so between the agriculture weather study that helps us understand weather patterns and communities across Minnesota in the future and more flexible uh, standards for taking climatological values and then turning them into the values that are used uh, to build out our infrastructure. I think those two things are really going to help Minnesota be more resilient. So those are the big research initiatives. And I'm happy to say they're both underway. Well, let me tell you, I'm a member of two planning commissions. And so I'm able to very easily explain how we don't allow permitting for building in flood zones. But as the conservative, I tend to err on the side of safety. And I often ask, how can we use the 500-year flood lines instead of the 100-year flood lines? And, you know, a lot of times, just like when I was trying to get solar panels on roofs of new buildings, I ran into Minnesota-level codes that said I couldn't force that. 
when I said, why do we build new houses with gas lines going to them? Again, I was told that we probably can't deny that because Minnesota code allows it. So I think, uh, Senator, there's some real issues there where the on the one hand, the federal government might be moving fast, the state government's moving slow, moving slow, and a local jurisdiction like a county or a township or a small city uh, are fighting against uh, the big boys. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Uh, it's uh, it's hard. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example in terms of, uh, I think in many cases it's a language Uh this agricultural weather, weather study that was referred to uh, uh, came to the legislature as a, uh, I'll just, I don't remember exactly, but it was a climate change uh, study or something along the way, climate change or data collection study or, or, or whatever it was. And, and we renamed it to the agricultural weather study uh, because that's the way we got it passed. Uh, and, uh, and kind of took the, you know, took the, the hot button, if you will, uh, terminology out of it and, uh, and made it something that everybody could support because we all wanted to work with our farmers and help them. And, uh, and by the way, and uh, on that particular uh, project, uh, I envisioned that uh, we spend tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on, on flood control projects in Minnesota. Well, uh, and we do this uh, rather blindly. Uh, of course, we know where the flood occurred, but uh, how are we going to really deal with this? And my thought was that going on to the future data from this uh, could certainly help the, our bonding committees make more intelligent decisions about where we fund it, what the priorities might be, as well as even local planning and zoning commissions. But, but to your to your question, uh, uh, there's always uh, rocks in the road, as I would call them, uh, as I was in the legislature. We 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 try to go down this path of logic and. Uh, People will throw uh, into the road. Well, what are you going to do about the wind, uh, the wind blades that we can't recycle? What are you going to do about the car batteries that are going to stack up and we have nothing to do with them? Uh, I, I was always convinced. Uh, again, engineering and engineer, uh, innovation would take care of that. Uh, uh, but I'll, I'll just tell you the way I, when I go to talk to my, if you will, my people or people that I try to talk to, I can't talk about like climate change. It's just, it's just. It's just because we'll talk about it for 10 years and we'll never make a decision. So <laughs> as simple as this might sound, uh, and I'm an old microbiologist at Mayo, and uh, I believe to the core that uh, our world cannot produce fossil fuels as fast as we can consume them. Those little anaerobes which produce our oil, our coal, our natural gas can just not keep up with demand, and they won't. And frankly, you can Google it up and you'll find out at least that, and, you know, they're, they're telling us that for oil and uh, natural gas, there's maybe 50 years worth of that left for maybe coal, there's a little over a hundred. Well, even if those things are 500% wrong, still within the near future of our earth, we're running out of those, those, those resources. And so we have to, in fact, find other ways to produce our energy whether it's, again, the wind, the water, the waves, uh, the geothermal, uh, uh, recovering heat wherever we can get it, conserving energy wherever we can find conservation. That's what we have to do. And, and forgive me for saying this, but uh, again, to just to boil it down into simple 
Hayfield, Minnesota, Norwegian language, you can't burn up the earth forever. <laughs> and, and, and the earth is just not capable of demands we're going to put on it if we're just going to rely on fossil fuels in an infinite sort of way. And we all know we can't. So if that's the case, and if we have any sense of earthly stewardship, at least it means to me that uh, we begin, we need to as need to begin seriously about finding other sources of energy which are not fossil fuel and which will take us into our future. And by the way, if we do this and we do it smart, I believe uh, you can become a Silicon Valley with respect to all of the economic virtues that come come with this. And, and we ought to be on that journey because Minnesota is, is nothing but about a brain power state. And uh, and we've got, we, we've got all the resources here to do this. Uh, and, and I think we've proven through time that we're the kind of state where good things can happen economically with this scientific and engineering perspective if we if we put our mind to it. And we ought to be putting our mind to a clean energy future. So I'm not sure if that answered the question. But that's kind of where I am. You got to you can't burn up the earth forever. Let's just move on and 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 make this thing work. The microbes can't make energy as fast as we can burn it. Yeah. And we've got to find different ways. So, Senator Sengem and Dr. Blumenfeld, uh, we always try to give our guests uh, an opportunity to uh, to leave our listeners with uh, the final word. Uh, we have about five minutes left in the show today. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Dr. Blumenfeld, if we could. Uh, what, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners this morning? Uh, maybe about two two minutes or so. Uh, then we'll move to you, uh, Senator Sengem, to close it out for the day. Oh, what can a what can a long-winded uh, climatologist <laughs> pack into two minutes? Okay, I guess I I would kind of go back to the basics. I think that you have to remember that there's a difference between what we're what we're observing and what we know scientifically, and what we want to do about it. And I think a lot of people hear the term climate climate change, and they they kind of flip to uh, making it a political discussion. And honestly, there's, there's nothing political about what we have observed. These are experiences that no matter how you vote, everybody has seen what's happened with our climate and how things have changed in Minnesota. And we're, we're an outdoors-loving, water-loving state, and our climate is actually a big part of our identity. And I think when we all realize that what we are talking about is is common to all of us and affects all of us. I think that helps in terms of policy uh, and what to do about it. Well, this is where people might differ on on some of the uh, on some of the issues. But just keeping in mind that Minnesota has gotten warmer, it's been getting wetter too. These changes are projected to continue. In other words, we be warmer and wetter in 20, 30, 70 years than we are now, and uh, and that there are going to be some new changes coming that we haven't yet experienced, including more severe drought and more intense heat waves. And so consider whatever your policy bent is, consider it from the standpoint of that science and that foundation that is common to all of us, the warmer, wetter conditions, which are already underway. And the, the state and the legislature have produced a lot of really good policy uh, options. So I'm I'm really honored to be here with uh, Senator Senjum and to talk to you about this. Thank you. And Senator Senjum, if you could close us out for the day. Well, uh, 
first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here today and uh, just talk about this. Uh, we have to normalize this conversation. Uh, we've got to put our swords down, so to speak, and, uh, and talk about it, I think, uh, intelligent from a standpoint of uh, seeing the future and going there and understanding that, uh, uh, like it or not, fossil fuels are, are, are not the future. And, and, and understanding that, uh, honestly, uh, the, the future may involve more cost for us from an energy perspective. Uh, we probably can't help that, but we have to uh, uh, take this journey, uh, understand perhaps that if we take it, uh, there's going to be a lot of economic virtues that come along with it that will offset those costs, and that the, the future can be ours if, in fact, we are willing to, uh, to I will often say, jump on the train and go there, because uh, the train is on the track, and uh, we would be well advised, uh, I think, as a uh, society as a, a global culture to uh, jump on it and understand that uh, if we're going to preserve this earth uh, we need to uh, again look at energy and all of their sources and, and carbon and what the effect it does have on the world's climate and we need to uh, understand that and uh, try to uh, solve this problem well before it uh, frankly gets any more serious so thank you for again for being here for the opportunity for me to be here Unfortunately, we've run out of time this morning. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Kenneth Blumenfeld, for your for sharing your extensive knowledge of climate science and meteorology with us today. Uh, keep up the great work at the Minnesota DNR and the University of Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host today has been John Olson. On next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week, we'll decipher cryptocurrencies. Be sure to join us. And Senator Senjum, thank you also for taking time from your busy schedule to share your wisdom and experience with us. That uh, We really appreciate the, uh, the leadership you've shown in our state on this particular issue. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Public Policy This Week was created to inspire important, meaningful, and in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities among our listeners. We do our best to stay away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today to deliver science-driven, fact-based policy discussions with all of you. Thank you for joining us today on Public Policy This Week. We'll be here next Friday at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.